The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Hey, well, I had a very interesting lunch with George Costanza today. Really? We were talking about our lives, and we both kind of realized we're kids. We're not men. So then you asked yourselves, isn't there something more to life? Yes, we did. Yeah, well, let me clue you in on something. There isn't. (laughs) There isn't? Absolutely not. I mean, what are you thinking about, Jerry? Marriage? Family? Well, they're prisons. (laughs) Man-made prisons. You're doing time. You get up in the morning, she's there. You go to sleep at night, she's there. It's like you got to ask permission to, to, to use the bathroom. Is it all right if I use the bathroom? Really? Yeah, and you can forget about watching TV while you're eating. I can? Oh, yeah. You know what? Because it's dinner time. And you know what you do at dinner? What? You talk about your day. How was your day today? Did you have a good day today or a bad day today? Well, what kind of day was it? Well, I don't know. How about you? How was your day? It's sad, Jerry. It's a sad state of affairs. I'm glad we had this talk. Oh, you have no idea. Oh, man. So if you don't know what that show is, I'll pray for your salvation. Um, So that's a, a funny clip, obviously, but I think it highlights a real issue, and that is people are just, they're down on marriage and family. They're, uh, they're down on marriage and family. And I think we see the same attitude in, in other kinds of comedy. So here's a Chris Rock quote on marriage. Uh, don't watch him. Just listen to this quote. Um, Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? So he sees it as this, this dichotomy. There's two options, single and lonely or there's married and bored. Those are your options. And there's these cliches that we use in our marriage. And it, it's something like this. We say things like the honeymoon is over or the old man or the old woman or the old ball and chain and there's these prison metaphors that we use when it comes to marriage and family but here's what here's what's interesting in our culture people are obsessed with relationships just check out go to any checkout aisle and you'll see magazines and books about relationships people are obsessed with relationships but they are down negative on marriage and family it's an interesting paradox and I think one reason why is because we know the family's broken. I don't have to convince you of that. I mean, you know the family's broken. I think everyone knows that. And so throughout this series, we have picked on men and women. And today, we're just, we're just picking on the whole family today. So mom, dad, the kids might even offend grandma today before it's all over. So this is a, this is a bad news sermon. Sorry to say, it's happy daylight savings time day. So it's a bad news sermon. Um, next week's going to be a good news sermon. Family Restored, Gary's going to come riding in on a white horse and encourage you with the gospel um, next week. And I'm hoping that today, though, the Holy Spirit can begin to till up some hard ground in our own hearts and minds, in our families, as we think about this idea of family broken. And so today's going to be the diagnosis, and next week is going to be the cure. So um, we'll talk later on about how family is broken. I want to focus first on the purpose of family. What is the purpose of family? We've covered the purpose of men, the purpose of women, the purpose of marriage. 
But what is the purpose of family? In the family, there are three kinds of relationships. There is husband and wife. There is um, uh, parents and kids. And then there's kids and kids. And each one of those relationships has its own unique purposes, but also its own unique kind of brokenness. And I think we can see that in our families today. But what is the purpose of parents? If you look back at the Old Testament, the purpose, one of the main purposes of parents is to model, and, model obedience and love for God. It's also to teach the family about the God of Israel. It is to provide for the family. It is to defend the family against threats. It is to help the family live in harmony. And it's also to help guide the kids towards marriage. There's also a purpose for kids, believe it or not, the purpose of being a kid is not just to play and have fun. But the Old Testament shows that kids were to help family through work, they're to provide for parents in old age, and they're also to honor and respect the parents. In fact, it's interesting, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel cites disrespect for parents as one of the reasons for the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. So to all the kids, no pressure. So it's a pretty big deal. And uh, the family is supposed to be a safe haven, a place of nurture, a place of uh, care, love, and compassion. But so often that is not the case. Instead, the family is often a place of discord, anger, even hatred, jealousy. And instead of being a safe place... It can often be a dangerous place. So what do you do when, instead of guarding against threats, family is the threat? What do you do instead of defending against um, threats, family itself is the danger? I've sat with so many students where this is the case. So they've, they've shared with me, uh, mom's doing this or dad's doing that, and family is the danger. Family is the threat. And you're counseling through that with them. And so it's not a secret the family is broken, but in order to understand it, I think we have to know the source of the brokenness. So turn with me to Genesis chapter uh, 4. We'll start in verses uh, 3. Genesis 4, 3. Genesis 4, 3 says... In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. After Adam and Eve fell, they're cast out of the garden. They then have two sons. They have Cain and Abel. And so much has been written um, about why did God accept Abel's offering, but not Cain's offering. Some say Abel's was more costly. Others say it was a hard issue. I'm not going to try to solve any of that today, but I want you to see just one thing. After God rejects Cain's offering, how does he respond? Well, he responds in anger. Skip down to verse 8. It says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
There's this common belief out there that since creation, things have just been getting worse and worse and worse. But I want to remind you, we started at murder. We started with murder. And it didn't take 20 generations, it took two. Cain invented murder. And the first family was broken in the worst way. I want you to look back at verse 10. It's a powerful image. God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So this image that because of, 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 of the death and the murder of, of Abel, it's like the blood of Abel is screaming out from the ground. And so as a result of that, God cursed the ground for Cain. God cursed the ground for Adam and Eve. He also cursed the ground for Cain because of his sin. I want you to take a step back and look what happened to Cain. His reaction, he's first, he's angry at God. Then that anger spills out onto his brother in murder. And I think we can say it this way, anger at God often leads to anger at man. Cain's vertical anger towards God leads to a horizontal anger towards man. And I think we see this today in our families. If anger permeates the family, there's probably some anger at God somewhere. I don't think anger like this happens in a vacuum. I think this is a theological, this is a spiritual issue. If there's some anger in the family, it's not just because of what happened. It's because there's some anger somewhere probably directed at God for some kind of injustice that you feel that he has owed you something he has not given to you. And so anger at God often leads to anger at man. And it just spills out into the family. And we see it here in the first family. And so if we're going to deal with it, we have to know where it comes from. I want you to turn over, look at, think about Adam and Eve. It would be so hard to lose a son. I can't imagine losing my son or my daughter. But imagine knowing your other son killed him. Just the kind of grief that would create in a family. On the screen here, I've got a picture of my, this is my uncle's grave. He was 19 when he died. I never knew him. This is my mom's brother. He's buried in Virginia. And he was killed in a, by a drunk driver when he was a teenager. And he was the oldest in their family, the oldest son in the family. And I know from my grandfather, seeing my grandfather just continue to grieve throughout his life, and my grandfather to his dying day, he would still get emotional talking about his son, his oldest son. Now imagine the layers of grief if one of his other kids had killed him. Just the layers of grief that he'd have to deal with and sort through beyond what he already had to deal with losing a son. They'd be so thick. And to couple that with Adam and Eve also had to know that it was their sin that caused this sin. So there's a responsibility that they feel as well as the first people that God created. Their sin led to this sin. And so their brokenness led to the whole family being broken. And if we're going to deal with the brokenness in the family, we have to know its source. Because when you and I see sin in our kids, it's very easy for us to look at our kids and be like, no, it's, it's them. It's like, no, it's, it's all of us. It's me. It's, it's everyone. We're all in the same boat. And so we don't get self-righteous, I think, as parents. We humbly approach our kids and try to lead and guide them towards the gospel. But I want to spend the rest of our time today just talking about 
how the family is broken. The very specific ways in which the family is broken. We're going to look at five ways we see this play out in families today. The first and the most obvious is divorce. Now, if you're someone who has been through this, I'm not trying to make you feel shame or condemnation today. But we've got to talk about, I actually gave Gary a hard time because he talked a lot about divorce in his marriage sermon. And I said, man, I've got to talk about divorce when I talk, so you've got to leave some stuff for me. But um, we've got to talk about divorce, I think. And so my goal is not to shame anyone. If you're someone who's been divorced, whether it's biblical or unbiblical, and how you, it went about, um, there, is, there is grace, there's forgiveness. And for someone who went through a biblical divorce, um, I know that that person can still feel an element of shame. My goal is not to shame anyone about this, but we've got to talk about this way in which the family is broken. Malachi 2.16 says this, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. The background of this passage is pretty alarming. The Israelite men are divorcing their wives for pagan wives. Then they're showing up at the temple as if nothing's wrong. They're showing up with their offering and saying, God, we're here to worship. We're here to give you our offerings. And God is looking at them and thinking, how can you bring your offerings to me when you are living in rebellion currently and abandoning your wives and embracing going after pagan wives? And so this might be like somebody filing for divorce with their spouse unbiblically and then just showing up for church like it's no big deal, like it's not a big deal. And this grieves God so deeply. In fact, if you skip back to verse 13, Malachi 2.13 says, You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. So these Israelites are coming to God and they're expecting him to receive their offerings. And God says, you flood the altar with tears because you're so upset that I'm not receiving your offerings. Like they're weeping and wailing because God is refusing their offerings as a result of their rebellion. He wanted to accept their worship. Contrast this with how many view divorce today. I read a quote recently. Today's children are the first generation in this country's history who think divorce and separation are a normal part of family life. When I talk to students who've gone through this, I'll say, hey, how are, how are you doing after mom and dad have gone through a divorce? Like, how are you doing with all this? And they'll often use the words, they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm okay, it's, it's fine. I'm okay, it's fine. And I know they're trying to you know, turn off the pain of it, and they'll use the word, it's fine. And we have to acknowledge, as the people of God, God's grieved by divorce. And as the people of God, we need to be grieved by it. I hate divorce. I hate it. Whenever I hear of a family getting divorced in our church, I'll get, I'll get this just sick feeling in my stomach thinking about that husband or that wife, or those kids. And so I hate divorce. 
I hate it. I hate what causes it, and I hate what it causes. And verse 16 says, divorce does violence, and it does. And it's okay for us to hate it like God hates it, and the people of God should be grieved by it. I think in our effort, when we say things like, no, it's fine, I think we're trying to turn things off a bit so we don't feel as much. And there's a quote by Matthew Elliott. He says, sadness is to think rightly about things that are wrong. There is a rightness to sadness. I'm not saying you go seek out sadness, but there is a rightness to sadness. Because it's an acknowledgement that there's things aren't the way they're supposed to be. This is not God's ideal. And there's a rightness to it. I think we try to numb ourselves to the pain of this kind of thing and sweep it under the rug and act like, you know, yeah, it's fine, it's okay. But I think it should grieve us in the way that it grieves God. And I know for people who go through it, divorce is a grief deeper than death. I've heard people say that it might be easier to lose a spouse to death than to divorce. And I think that's true. I think it's true. So divorce is the most obvious way, I think, in which the family is broken. But there's some other ways the family can still be together, but still broken. I want to discuss four ways in which we see this today. The first one is anger. In Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, we see, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. All anger isn't sin. There's righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. But even the righteous anger can be handled in wrong ways. If you get consumed by it or you sit in it or it festers, even righteous anger can lead to unrighteous things. And we give Satan an opportunity. The word here is, in Greek is topos, T-O-P-O-S, meaning area of space. Whenever we let even righteous anger, if we sit in it, we let it fester, we give Satan an area of space in which he can work in our lives. We give an opportunity, a foothold. That's what the NIV says, I believe. We help Satan do his work. We've got to remember that Satan wants to destroy the family. That's his goal, is to destroy the family. This is spiritual warfare. In fact, in Ephesians 5 through 6, there's this interesting structure where we see a section on the family or a section on marriage, a section on the family, and then we see spiritual warfare in chapter 6. And I think that's on purpose. I don't think it's a coincidence. It's, it's like Paul is writing and, and he's thinking, you know, while we're talking about kids, let's talk about demons, because those kind of relate to each other, you know? And so it's not, I think it's actually on purpose. I think he's intentional because Satan wants to destroy the family. He wants to destroy the family. He wants to destroy it. In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this applies to both mom and dad, but it's directed at the fathers. In our effort to correct, we can provoke and it can lead to discouragement. So in Colossians, it talks about this, that we can, we can so provoke our kids to anger that we just lead to their discouragement. Like, we, we, we want to come to them with all this anger and rage, and how could you do such a thing? 
And then our kids just feel like, I can't ever please mom and dad. I can't ever do anything right with mom and dad. And they're just discouraged by it. Listen, parenting is hard. I think you know that. Parenting is difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm just JV. I have two kids. Some of you guys have four or five. You're varsity. <laughs> but parenting is difficult. For the first 10 years of your kid's life, they are overly impressed by you. And then followed by a decade of them not being impressed by you at all. I mean, you could be Michael Jordan in his prime and they wouldn't care, right? And so we cannot discipline out of anger or we incite their anger and create this vicious cycle in the family. The next way is insensitivity. I don't mean to stereotype, but there's probably one gender that's more prone to insensitivity. I don't know which one that is, but I think you might already know. But 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And again, this can apply to both genders, but as men, we need to seek to understand our wives. Now, Paul wasn't married, but Peter was. And it sounds like he speaks from experience here. We know Peter was always shooting his mouth off. And so what does it mean to be sensitive? To the men. It's not just what you say, but it's how you say it. Right, ladies? It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Men have this propensity to think that as long as I'm right, it doesn't matter how I say anything, because it's correct. The content of what I said is correct, so what's your problem? This is how we think. I'm confessing to you this morning. And so it's not just what you say, but it's how you say it. And if you're having trouble following in this passage, for the one who doesn't get this truth, to live in a, with an understanding way with your wife, did you catch the last line of that verse? Look at the last line of that verse. So your prayers may not be hindered. If a man stops listening to his wife, God stops listening to him. I'll just let that just kind of sit right there. The last, one of the last ways I want to talk about today and how the family is broken is what I call the drift. And I just made up this, I tried to think of a name for it, this is what I came up with. It's called the drift. And I'm going to talk mainly about media and technology. Young people get a bad rap for being consumed with technology, but it's not generational anymore. It's everyone. If I go into waiting rooms throughout our city, Everyone's on the phone. It's mom, dad, it's grandma, it's great grandma, it's everybody's on the phone and in using digital technology. And I'm not judging, I am the worst one. I'm the worst one. And over the last year or so, I've just noticed this disconnect with, um, in my family because of this kind of thing. So my wife and my kids, 
And my job feels just wrapped up in this thing. I sent over a thousand text messages last month. That cannot compare to your junior high kid. I understand that. But that's a lot of messages for me. And I spend just most of my day, I feel like, just being on the phone and texting and emailing and texting and emailing and calling. And I can go like a whole day, almost a whole day, and feel like I don't think I really talked to anybody today in person. It was all just digital interaction. And then, of course, there's social media and important stuff like reading about sports. And we just spend so much time looking at a screen, hardly ever engaging a real human being. And you just begin to feel this disconnect with people and in your family, like you're just drifting apart. So you all come home from work or from school, and everyone just kind of drifts and goes to the little corners, and they do the little technology thing for a couple hours. Then it's dinner time, and then it's back to the digital world again, and there's just this drift happening in the family. Sometimes I'll be on my phone at home, you know, nothing important, and my son will be, you know, he's nine years old, he'll say, he'll say, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad. And I'm like, don't you see I'm reading about the NFL draft? Come on, man, what is your problem, you know? It's important stuff. And I know in a few years, the tables are going to turn, where he'll be holding the phone, and I'll be like, Landon, Landon. The tables are going to turn, and I don't want to miss these moments with my kids. So we've been trying to make some changes in our family because we struggle with this, just like you do. So it's resulted in things like leaving the phone at home more, um, no phone at the dinner table, one of our rules as a family. Recently, my, my wife and I went on a trip to Austin. We went on a date for the whole day to Austin. It was like a nine-hour, just a whole day spent in Austin on a Saturday. And I said, you know what? I felt real noble. I was like, I'm going to leave the phone at home, all right? Leave the phone at home. And she brought hers in case the babysitter called, left it in her purse. And here's what happens. We're driving home, and I've been away from the phone for like nine hours. And I think to myself, you know what? When I get home, I'm going to have probably like 18 text messages to answer and 23 emails because I'm so important. And, uh, and we get home, and I rush to my phone to see what, you know, I've missed and I got two text messages. And they were group. They weren't even to me. And so it's just humbling knowing that, you know, I can probably go a lot longer than that without this thing. I'll be okay. And you know how it is. Whenever you start making personal changes in life like this, you start judging everybody else. I know the gluten-free people know what I'm talking about. But we go to the father-daughter dance here in Temple and with some other guys, with our daughters. And in the middle of the dance, there are these dads that just are, are in circles at these tables and they're on their phones and their daughters are, I don't know, somewhere else. And I look at that and I just wanna, I wanna break the phone and then break their face. I'm just like, what are you doing? Like you're at the father-daughter dance. We know you can't dance. I mean, it's okay. Every dad, most dads can't dance. But get on the dance floor with your daughters. You're at the father-daughter dance. And then my wife and I, we go out to dinner sometimes, and, you know, we're always looking for ways to judge people. So we, <laughs> we look around the restaurant, and we see the glowing faces. We see the, the couples, the boyfriends, girlfriends. We see the husband and wife, and 
No one's talking, but they're just looking at their phones. And or their conversations are like this. It's, hey, hey, look at this. Hey, look at this. Hey, look what so-and-so posted. And that's the extent of their conversation. And it's really just kind of just sad. This is where we are. And here's where it's convicting to me because we are, and I struggle with this, we are sitting across the table from someone who's made in God's image, and we find this more interesting. We find this more appealing, this more intriguing, a machine. I recently read that, I recently read that married couples are intimate less often today. You know why? Netflix. They're too tired. They'd rather watch Walking Dead. And so they spend all their time in the evenings just binge watching Netflix, and it's just, that's it. And so married couples, and so this is an Imago Day issue. It's an Imago Day issue. You have someone that God has given you to cherish and nourish, made in God's image, and yet we opt for a digital world. And there's this drift happening in the family. I read recently this quote, your cell phone has already replaced your camera, your calendar, your alarm clock. Don't let it replace your family. Smartphones are making us dumb relationally. They're making us dumber relationally. In fact, if you're already starting to kind of roll your eyes about, are you really talking about technology and cell phones and church? I mean, what's, what's the big deal? So let me scare you with science. I read this book this past year. It's called The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. It's called What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. I read this book. It's boring. Don't read it. I read it for you. <laughs> but it talks about how your brain is rewired and restructured the more you do stuff like this, and you are less empathetic, you are less likely to be able to engage in conversation with people, and it affects you. It rewires you. And so you're always in and out of the digital, you know, doing digital stuff and conversation and back and forth, back and forth. And there's just this relational drift that takes place and I think especially affects our families. So I want to challenge you this morning to plan a day trip as a family where everyone leaves their phones at home. Breathe. All right. I didn't say you couldn't eat food. Just, just try it. And listen. I know in your mind you're thinking like, well, but what if we get lost? It's like, use a map. Read the stars. I don't know, figure it out. But come on, like, there's got to be a way. Like, listen, this thing is 10 years old. How did we do anything before, before 2006? Really? So I think if we're honest, there's this digital gluttony taking place in the culture and in our families. And it's due to, um, it's causing a major drift that happens, I think, in the family unit, family structure. The next thing I want to talk about is called the fog. The fog. There are times when people wrong each other, and we know who's at fault. It's black and white. 
this person sinned, this person needs to forgive that person, and this person needs to repent. And there are times in families when it's black and white, you know, mom left or dad left or whatever happened, happened. And it's black and white as to who's at fault for what happened. But in the family, there's also situations that happen where things are complicated. And you can't quite make sense. You can't figure out, like, who was really at fault? What really happened here? I'm not really sure what's the answer to the situation. And there's just this fog hanging over the relationship because of what's happened. Not sure what caused it. So a few years ago, about a year and a half ago, I went to the... United Arab Emirates with our missions pastor, Chase, and small group pastor, Dave Richardson, Michael Norman, Steve Kewitt, and we all, all five of us went over to the UAE to visit some pastors and some, uh, some goers that we have over in that part of the world. And we're in our, on our first morning in Dubai, and this pastor of Redeemer uh, Church in Dubai takes us on this little tour of a market in Dubai, and here's a picture of the market area. And you'll see here, everyone is looking over to the right-hand side. And they're doing that because there's this jewelry store that has massive ring in the window. This thing is huge. You could sit in this thing. And um, the pastor just said, hey, you want to take a picture of the ring? Go ahead and take a picture. So I took a picture, and I wanted to get a closer, so I got a closer picture of the ring. And then I turn around, and everyone's gone. And I'm looking like, is this a joke? Is this a prank? What, where'd they go? And they're just gone. And we're at an intersection now. So I'm looking down all four streets going, where, where are the guys? Thinking I'm being pranked. Well, I don't have international authorization yet on the phone, so I can't get a hold of them yet. I can't text or call at that point. And so 20 minutes go by, and they don't come back. And I'm thinking, wait, surely they'll, they'll realize I'm, I'm missing. I'm not part of the group. What in the world's going on here? And I start getting nervous. And I remind you, this is my first day in the Middle East. I'm already kind of nervous, right? And so I think they'll come back. And, and I remind you, there's only five of us. And Chase has five kids. I told his wife, be able to watch after your kids <laughs> better, right? And I'm 20% of the group. And I come to find out later that they actually got on a boat and crossed a body of water. <laughs> I tell people it was the Persian Gulf. It wasn't, but that's what I tell people. Just for dramatic effect. And so I finally get on Wi-Fi and I, I text Chase and say, hey man, like you guys left me where you guys at? And he, he's like, oh no. And so here we are like an hour later and they come back and get me where I was and the guys, of course, are teasing me and giving me a hard time and everything. And I said, look, man, I'm not the first one to be transfixed by a gold ring. It's happened before, you know? <laughs> I mean, seriously. So why do I tell you all that? Because if you ask either of us what happened, we would both have a different story. If you ask Chase, it's Dave got lost. If you ask Dave... It's Dave got left, right? <laughs> it's a matter of perspective. Now, don't worry. You know, Chase and I are okay. We're fine. We've been fine ever since he repented. <laughs> but, but we're okay. 
And so I imagine in your families, you've had some similar scenarios where that are more serious in nature, but it's hard to put a finger on it. It's hard to figure out like what really happened here. And it wasn't sinful. It wasn't um, a right or a wrong. It was just a miscommunication or misunderstanding. And as a result of that, you're just in this fog in the relationship and you can't quite figure out what to do about it or where to go from there. And if you ask someone what happened, the answer would depend on who you ask. You ask mom, well, this is what your dad did. You ask dad, well, this is what your mom did. Ask the kids, this is what one of them did. And it's a matter of perspective. And there's just this fog hanging over the relationships. This is why we have to be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear, and quick to forgive. In fact, uh, my wife is a counselor, so I asked her, I said, hey, if you, if you could give one piece of advice to parents especially when it comes to just forgiveness in these relationships with, with kids, what would you say? And she said this, I want to go and put it on the screen. She said this, everyone struggles with perfectionism, but in our effort to try hard and do better, we're really trying to fix ourselves. We underestimate how much can be restored by simply being humble and sorrowful when we've hurt someone. When we can look our four-year-old or 16-year-old in the eye saying, mommy or daddy spoke hurtfully to you. That's called sin, and I'm sorry for hurting you. Will you forgive me? When we do this, we make it okay for our children to come to us as broken sinners, finding grace instead of scorn and shame. I think as parents, whenever we can lay aside our power as the parent, humble ourselves, we then unleash the power of the gospel into our families, and our families are changed by it. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I want to ask the worship team to join us back on stage. We're going to sing here in a minute. But Malachi 4, 5, and 6, these are the last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction... Now, Elijah here means someone in the spirit of Elijah. It's believed this is John the Baptist. These are the last words of the Old Testament. John's ministry was the forerunner to Christ's ministry. And John's ministry was going to result, there was going to be something about it that completely changed the family. Completely changed the family. When there's repentance, something happens in families. Fathers' hearts are turned back to kids, and kids' hearts are turned back to their fathers. So I want to invite you, as we sing together this last song, to be thinking about this week and next Sunday, as we discuss Family Restored. I want God to be churning up the soil in our families, the hard, dry ground in our families, as we think about what God wants to do, as we come to repentance and think about the gospel and how it applies to our families. Go ahead and stand with me. I'll remind you that the blood of Abel, we saw cries out from the ground. This was an accusation, a condemnation, a, a way of saying you're guilty. Cain was guilty for murdering Abel. So the blood of Abel cries out from the ground, but the blood of Jesus cries out from the cross. 
Let's go ahead and worship together.